Welcome to the Governance Voice Podcast, your source for news, trends, and challenges in the world of corporate governance. GPC is a member organization that promotes and supports the role of the governance professional and corporate secretaries across Canada. We provide valuable information on changes and developments that affect our industry. Each month, we dedicate a podcast episode to a key relevant topic. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to The Governance Voice, the official podcast of Governance Professionals of Canada. I am Lynn Beauregard, President of GPC, and today I am sitting down with Beverly Bayen, the President of Board Advisor, LLC. Bev has worked with nearly 200 boards over the last 25 years on board effectiveness issues, including board and director evaluations, CEO succession planning, and more. And she works primarily with public company boards, mostly S&P 1500s, and has worked with boards in Canada, Israel, Malaysia, Central America, basically all over the world. Bev is also the author of Great Companies Deserve Great Boards, a governance classic that was named Governance Book of the Year in the United States when it came out nearly 10 years ago. I have known Bev for over 15 years. Actually, we were trying to figure out the actual timeline before this podcast. Needless to say, I've always admired Bev and her immense energy and love of governance. She's also spoken multiple times at our annual conference over the years and has run many fabulous workshops for GPC. So today I have the pleasure to speak to Bev about two very important topics for boards, CEO succession and board evaluations. Perhaps I would venture that these are even more top of mind than ever today, as in many cases, the COVID-19 crisis may simply have caused boards to put off these activities in 2020. So I think this is a very timely conversation. Bev, it's so nice to have you with us and welcome to this edition of the GPC podcast. I know you wrote two new books during the COVID lockdown. I actually wrote four books during the COVID lockdowns, but we're going to talk about a couple of them today. So um, one that I literally just finished uh, last week was called Becoming a Boardroom Star, which uh, it's probably going to be the first one we're going to take on to Amazon um, probably around Labor Day. Fantastic. That's amazing. I saw the cover. You sent me a picture. It looks really good. And I know the two other books that you've been working on, board and director evaluations and new CEOs and boards, which is exactly what we're going to be looking at today and taking a bit of a deeper dive into that. You've also, on top of that, created two new online workshops, one called Innovations in Board Building and on CEO Succession Planning. So we'll be touching on some of your insights on both of these workshops and also when and how and where we can direct our members to sign up. So why don't we start this discussion with some insights of the succession planning side, and then we can pivot and cover board innovations concepts. Just to note to our listeners, we will be linking up to any of the resources or articles and links that are mentioned on our page for the podcast if you're interested in looking them up. So let's jump in. So Bev, with COVID-19, a lot of boards obviously have focused on emergency CEO succession. If God forbid something happened to their CEO amidst the pandemic. Talk to us a little bit about emergency CEO succession planning and what do you see as some of the best practices there? Well, thanks. That's a great question to start with, Lynn. You know, about 20 years ago, when I moved from Toronto to New York, there was a story that went around Wall Street about 
a very prominent, but very elderly CEO of a Fortune 200 company. And he had put off the topic of CEO succession planning for years with his board. And he told his board, don't worry, if anything happens to me, I've put the name of my successor in an envelope and I've given it to my butler. And if anything happens to me, the butler will give the envelope to the board. Okay. Now we all laugh at that today. We say, what kind of board would put up with this high-handed attitude from their CEO? But I'll be really honest with you, when I think of how most boards do CEO, emergency CEO succession planning today, it's almost a name in the envelope. The only difference is they've talked about the name. And so often that emergency succession planning discussion is nothing but do you like Fred or do you like Julia as the emergency success? And I think that real best practice goes beyond that. So in the online workshop, in the new little book, I talk about a case study. This is about a guy, I call him Max, it's not his real name. He's the CEO of a biotech outside of Boston. He decides he wants to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro with his two teenage sons to celebrate his 50th birthday. Now, this board never thought much about CEO succession planning for Max because he was young. He was in his 40s. The thing is, though, Max is a guy that spent most of his time, you know, in the lab or hunched over his laptop. He looked like his gym membership had expired many years ago. And now he's off to climb the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Right. <laughs> so the board is a little worried. They're like, what if Max doesn't come back? So Max's knee-jerk reaction is, don't worry, guys, the CFO can step in. But the lead director says, listen, I don't think that's really good enough. So we created like an interview protocol. We did interviews with everybody on the board before the emergency succession discussion. And it was really interesting. So the kinds of things we asked about were like, what are your actual criteria for an emergency leader? What do you see as the biggest risk to the company if Max doesn't come back? What do you see as the pros and cons of elevating an executive versus putting a board member in, in an interim capacity? What do you see as the readiness of potential candidates. That changed the entire discussion. First of all, Max, just even looking at the question, said, you know what? The right choice isn't the CFO. It's this person that runs the largest division. And then in the course of the interviews, two directors said, honestly, if Max doesn't come back from Kilimanjaro, we're going to get a hostile takeover and we're going to be in play. And all of a sudden, the whole plan changed. And it involved elevating another executive, a COO, a director coming in to be CEO to take on the hostile takeover. My point is simply this. This went way beyond the old name in an envelope discussion, which is kind of would have been, oh, the CFO versus somebody else, to really be more comprehensive. And it changed the whole plan. It also set up a lot of good stuff in terms of executive development for some of the people on the team, board exposure to some of the other executives. So it became a much more fruitful process than the more traditional name in the envelope approach. Yeah, probably, I would say. Great story. So do you think then it's a good idea for the emergency successor to be told in order to make sure they'd be willing to step in as an RMDO during a crisis? Or what are the pros and cons there? So that's a great question, Lynn. And that's something I like to refer to as the Las Vegas principle. Okay. I'm kind of a fan of, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas when it comes to emergency fee succession planning. So my view is I think there's a lot of risk with telling the emergency successor because it creates expectations. And sometimes the board changes the plan. Sometimes they change the plan, even depending on the circumstances of a crisis. Sometimes they change the plan down the road. Also, your emergency successor isn't always the person that you would choose as the long-term successor. And if you tell them that, sometimes it creates those expectations. So 
those are the cons. Those are, you know, people that are of the view what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's how they see it. The other side of the coin, though, Lynn, is some people say, well, gosh, if we really were in a crisis, the last thing we want to hear is call up the person we want to name and they say, I, I can't do it. You know, there's, I'm not willing to step in for some reason. So we got to tell this person to make sure they're willing and ready. Those are the two sides of the coin. What I would say, however, is the absolute best practice is to have that conversation as a board before you get out of that boardroom and leave that emergency succession discussion, before you hang up that Zoom call, have that conversation and agree that you're either going to tell the emergency successor or you're not. Because if you don't, guess what's going to happen? Somebody's going to tell them. So if you don't have the conversation, believe me, the cat's getting out of the bag. I saw it myself. There was a board I was working with and we did an emergency succession discussion. Everyone agreed it would be the CFO for various reasons. And I think most people thought the CFO wouldn't be told. We literally went from the boardroom to a reception before the board dinner and the audit committee chair went over to the CFO, shook their hand and said, congratulations, decided that if something happens to you to CFO. So mm -hmm. I think the real best practice is have that conversation, make your own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier, you talked about planning and, and a roadmap. So what is a CEO succession planning roadmap? What is it and how do boards use it? So the CEO succession planning roadmap is a tool I started working with about 10 years ago when I started working with boards on succession planning. You know, I'm not a headhunter, so I don't do the search piece and I don't do executive assessments. I started doing this work because I did so much work in board evaluation and CEO succession planning was coming up all the time as the board's single most important decision and they didn't feel they had a good, robust enough process. So that's how I started working in that. And basically the roadmap is the plan. I mean, it goes step by step with a timeline from the creation of the criteria for the CEO right through to the leadership transition. It's never set in stone, but it keeps the whole thing on the rails. Why I love it as a process is it, it gets the board to think about a lot of the issues right up front, and it has a real bearing on the logistics and the timing of the plan. So let me just highlight maybe a couple of things that come up a lot. So one is this whole question about, do you want your top candidate before you name them CEO to serve as chief operating officer or in some other role of, of institution-wide responsibility, right? Now there's pros and cons of that, but let's say as a board, you agree that you want to name the person COO for at least a year. And let's say you think you're three years out. Well, actually you're two years out now from making a decision if they're going to be COO for a year. And maybe you actually think it should be longer. Maybe you want that COO job to be really meaty. Maybe it involves a new strategy and these sorts of things that's sort of a final test for your candidate. Well, that timeline is really starting to move up. So if you do a roadmap and you start right at the outset, you can think your way through those issues before you're under the gun and you've lost the time. So that's why I think it's a great process. Yeah, backwards. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And what about the use of executive assessments in the CEO succession planning process? Is that something that you recommend? And I recommend that so strongly that, and again, this isn't work that I do personally, but just having been involved in a lot of CEO succession plans and working with many boards around this over the years, my view is that this is the most important decision the board is going to make. And if you make that decision without doing some kind of formal executive assessment, credible, valid executive assessment process as part of your due diligence, if you don't do that, I think you're as negligent as a board that approved a major M&A transaction with no legal or financial due diligence. 
So I'm a huge fan of it. Now, there are many considerations in terms of at what stage of the process do you do it? There are different methodologies. A lot of the search firms now bundle assessments with their search capabilities. And that's sort of nice. There's cost synergies and there's one-stop shopping involved. The downside though, is some directors don't like the optics of that. They say, I don't like the optics of the firm that's sourcing external candidates, doing the evaluations of internal and external candidates. I don't like the look of that to our internal candidates. Again, pros and cons, but those are some of the things you want to think through. The bottom line is it's a really good idea to do it. One of my best recommendations to directors who are chairing a CEO succession planning committee or whether it's the HR committee and they're going to quarterback that on behalf of the board, a lot of times they are stymied in terms of the different methodologies for assessments. You know, how do I know which is the right one? And to me, they should be scientifically valid and readily understandable. But my favorite piece of advice, I gave this to a couple of chairs, one very memorable, they had done a bake-off and they had six firms and they were down to three. And he said, I'm going to be the guinea pig. He was the chair of the CS Succession Committee. And I'm going to actually have you guys put me through each one of these assessments myself. And this was eye-opening when he said, when they pitched, you would have thought they were all the same. They were very different. One firm didn't even use interviews and he did not like that. And of the other two, they were both pretty good, but one guy just blew him away. He said he really got the nuance of my weaknesses. And so he said, there was no doubt in my mind, this is the person I wanted to do it on behalf of my board. And it was also really cool because he could tell the internal candidates at the company that he'd gone through it himself. And he understood it really well when he was talking to the board about it too. That's a really neat approach. Very good thinking on his part. Yeah. So let me ask you something else. What happens when you get a new CEO? Do you have any thoughts on the onboarding process for new CEOs? Well, sure. I mean, I just had the pleasure of doing an entire book called New CEOs and Boards, How to Build a Great Board Relationship and a Great Board. And not to take up all our time talking about that subject. In a nutshell, when somebody becomes chief executive officer for the first time, this is a very unique transition because always in their career, they were reporting up to one person. They had a boss. And to get to the C-suite, you got pretty good at managing the boss. But now you're reporting to like eight or nine or 10 people. And that is a whole new ballgame. And that is a transition that many new CEOs really have trouble with. For one thing, they way underestimate the time that's involved in that. Studies now are suggesting it's between 15 and 20% of a CEO's time is spent on interacting with the board, getting ready for board meetings, attending board meetings, doing debriefs with their chair or lead director. So I think that's one piece. I think another piece is CEOs often overstate the importance of the relationship with their chair or a lead director in the U.S., and that is a pivotal relationship. I'm not undercutting that, but you have to build a relationship with your entire board. And I think many CEOs don't spend enough time fleshing out the rest of those relationships. So there's a whole chapter in the new book, which is about one-on-one meetings at the start of your tenure with everybody on your board. You know, a lot of CEOs will say, well, I don't need to do that because when they were choosing me as CEO, I sat down with all of them and I've been the CFO before, so I know them. No, no, no. You are the job applicant then. Now you are the CEO. And this is a conversation about how you're going to work together. And it's a really important conversation. And often 
you know, pre-COVID, I would see CEOs just hop on the company plane and go take a director to lunch. And it was all social conversation. That's a wasted opportunity. So with a little more structure, a little more focus, you can make these really important conversations. And one of the things that happened in the COVID lockdowns is every director in the world practically learned how to use Zoom and video conferencing, and you can do them right there. You don't even have to leave. So... I think there is a lot of opportunity, but really in the first 12 months that you're CEO, you're going to create your board relationship, whether you like it or not, or whether you're conscious of it or not. So it's better to be conscious of it, get it started on a really positive and constructive foot, because that's going to serve you well for your whole tenure in the C-suite. We now interrupt this podcast to let you know that GPC's 23rd Annual Corporate Governance Conference will be taking place on August 17th and 18th and will bring together over 45 of the top governance experts and practitioners on topics such as board governance and strategy, ESG practices, diversity, equity and inclusion insights, boards of the future, AGM strategies, cyber risk governance, and more. Our event will be virtual, premiering live on August 17th and 18th, 2021, and available online for a full 30 days for unlimited viewing of sessions and our sponsored booths. Don't miss 21st Century Governance, forging the path ahead. To learn more and to register, visit gpcanada.org forward slash conference. That's gpcanada.org forward slash conference. Grab knowledge at your fingertips. Yeah, and definitely to check out your new book on that. I think that would be a really good tool to have by your bedside, if that's the case. (laughs) Thank you. We're going to shift directions maybe to board evaluations now. And you will work in this area because I know you've done quite a bit of work in this area. Many boards are looking, obviously, for ways to redesign their board evaluation process to make it more worthwhile, engaging, and impactful. And you conducted the first, you told me, the first director evaluation ever undertaken by a major Canadian corporation. The major North American, actually. When we did it, yeah. When I came to New York, I mean, no one had done this. Yeah. And that was in 1996, I think. It was 96, Bank of Montreal. 25 years ago. Yeah. So what has changed since? What have you learned about board and director evaluation since that time? Well, you know, what we did in 96 was what was considered leading edge in 96. Okay. We did a survey form, circle one to five, writing comments. Okay, that was considered really state of the art in 96. Don't forget, in 1996, people were still listening to cassette tapes. People were listening to the Sony Discman. Okay, things have changed an awful lot in 25 years. I would never dream of doing a board evaluation like that or a director evaluation like that. I mean, that is such antiquated technology, if you will, in this. We've come a long way since. We've come a long way since then. So I think, you know, if you want to do a really robust word, it, first it sort of starts with a state of mind, right? Is this a compliance tool or is this a tool for board development? Is it actually a team building exercise, which most of my board evaluations end up being for my boards? If you want it to be a compliance exercise, go ahead, circle one to five and write in. doesn't matter because you're not trying to achieve anything anyway. It's a compliance tool. But where people are frustrated with their board evaluations, they say, well, they're not having any impact. They were never designed like that. Circle one to five and write in. 
in was designed as a compliance tool. So you have to change it if you have different objectives for it. So if you want to use this as a tool to kind of take your board from good to great or keep your great board vibrant or really get after some issues and tap into the insights of your directors, first of all, you got to do interviews, you know, because interviews allow you to get really constructive feedback. You can probe, you can get specifics, you can get actionable feedback, okay, which you just can't get with like 3.5 and some vague write-in or some guy writes an essay or whatever, like it's just not helpful. So, and, and again, the fact that directors all learned to use Zoom and video conferencing means you can have these um, interviews on, on Zoom or Blue Jeans, Microsoft Teams, your poison of choice. They work really well. I had to learn to do them myself last year when all the boards went on to that. They work great because you can still see the body language, you connect and it's great. So I think that's actually a vehicle that will allow a lot of boards to migrate from the old survey forms to an interview format. And frankly, I just think it shows more respect for your board because you're really tapping into their insights and perspectives. I am a huge fan of including interviews with senior managers that are regularly in the board meetings, which very often includes the corporate secretary, nearly always includes the general counsel, the CFO, the CHRO. And, you know, if you're going to do that, you nearly always have to have an outside facilitator because, you know, who's going to really be that upfront about the shortcomings of the board if you're on the executive team? I mean, you're just not. So that all said, I don't think you need to do that every year. I think if you do that kind of comprehensive board evaluation every three years, that's kind of the pattern most of my clients are in. That's what we see in the regs out of Britain that seems to work for them. I think that works really well. But doing that every three years can be a really, really helpful you know, process. And we can certainly talk about the outcomes that you generally see from that if you want to get into that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then I think maybe even alternating yeah. feedback questionnaire once a year, but then every three years really deep yeah. dig down into, you know, into the psyche of the board and, and doing that. Well, that's exactly what most of my clients that trade on New York do, because New York requires an annual board evaluation, but they don't want to do this comprehensive. It's not worth it. If you do a comprehensive board evaluation, you've got an action plan that's going to take you over a year to fulfill. So why do that again? So that's exactly what they do. They do every three years, a comprehensive interview-based process with an external facilitator. And in the intervening years, they do a little survey. And sometimes the survey is a follow-up on the action plan from the more comprehensive one. So I also think it's very good to use different facilitators, different lenses to look at the board. It gives fresh perspectives and it's nearly always a good idea. So, I mean, as far as you're concerned, you know, taking a board from good to great is that's the tool. That's one of the tools. That's the best tool I've ever found in 25 years of trying a lot of different things. But it has to be designed in the right way, okay? If it's some survey with Circle 5, it's not going to accomplish anything. You've got to sit down. You've got to create a protocol in advance. You've got to talk about all eight key parameters of board building, and you have to tailor this so that it's highly tailored to the boards you're dealing with. That's what makes it resonate to your directors so that it's really worthwhile and useful. It's not some cookie cutter template, right? Board performance management tool. Is what it is. It's the best for performance management tool I've ever found. Yeah. Now, yeah. we're not talking director performance management. That's that's different. And we can talk about that too, if you like. But I'm talking about board performance management. Yeah. It's the best tool I've ever found. We were talking about the 2020 PricewaterhouseCoopers survey study in the U.S., which surveyed about 700 companies, if I'm correct. 700 directors. Yeah. And a, nearly half, 49% said 
one of their fellow directors should be replaced and 21% said two should really go. Yeah, um, or more. <laughs> or more, which is 2020, just last year. So that's really interesting. Can you talk about that? What's going on? What are the shortcomings? Is this an age and term limit issue? What are some of the performance management issues? And can you get at them from the board evaluation? Okay, so first of all, it's a really interesting finding. And it's not an aberration because in the 2019 PWC study, it was almost the same numbers. So it shows that that's a real problem. I would argue that director performance management is the biggest shortcoming in corporate governance today. And what's also interesting in that PwC study, they asked these same 700 directors to rate their board leadership on a whole bunch of things that board leaders do. And the lowest score was in director performance management. 25% of the respondents, these are board members, said their chair or lead director was either not very or not at all effective in terms of director performance management. So this is a big shortcoming. And this is a way where I think corporate secretaries can help their chairs or CEOs or other board leaders, um, because this is a problem. Agent term limits do not work for this. Okay. That's what boards like because they're nice and tidy, right? You hit the retirement age, you're off the board, it's clean, no questions asked, or you hit the term limit. The problem is when people are talking about directors that need to be replaced, it's because they don't come prepared to meet it or because they use a patronizing tone with the management team or their fellow directors, or it's because they have a conflict of interest, or it's because they don't take pains to keep abreast of the business and learn about the business and what's going on in the industry. It has nothing to do with their age or the length of time that they've served on the board. And when we look at the number of boards, you know, in the S&P 500, which is where these directors came from, that already have age and term limits, they're clearly not solving this problem. So we need to use different tools. I think there's a couple of different tools that, you know, we can talk about that work pretty well for this. Why don't we take a little bit of a deeper dive? You know, your new online workshop actually introduces three governance tools that many people probably have never heard of. So I think one was board 2.0. You've got board composition, benchmarking, You've got new director 360. Can you tell us a little bit about these? I can tell you about those. I'm going to just backtrack a little bit to talk about specifically director performance management tools because those are and aren't. So the most evident director performance management tool is a director evaluation. Okay. And in the workshop, we talk about that too. And there's a board building toolkit. It talks about all of these tools. So I think it's really useful for boards. It's useful for corporate secretary. It gives you a nice overview on how they all work, what they can accomplish, how to design them so they have impact. So director evaluations, again, using scores just gets people mad. Even high scores doesn't really tell them what they're doing well. If you're going to do a really good director evaluation process, you need to use confidential interviews and you need to probe until you get constructive and actionable feedback for people. And that's what makes it worthwhile. And it needs to be balanced. Even Mm -hmm. your biggest problem director probably has some strengths. And if you acknowledge those in the feedback, they're more willing to take the negative feedback. And similarly, most of the best board champions, I call them that I work with best directors I work with, they'll get great feedback and they'll right away say, yeah, just tell me what I can do better because that's what I want to know. So now you're not going to get that with a circle five and a write in. You're just not, you've got to really probe on the interviews and get some constructive feedback. And it has to be confidential so that people will be candid. Now that all said, that is the best tool I've ever found for what I'll call behavioral related problems. 
Okay. So that's, you know, the person that isn't prepared, the person who gets too entrenched, the person who takes the whole board down rabbit holes and is eating up a lot of time. Because when you give them that kind of constructive, actionable feedback, they right away get what's wrong. And 80% of the time, they try to fix it. They don't like getting this kind of feedback from their peers. So that actually works really well. However, what if the problem isn't behavioral? What if it's actually the person's background? So let's talk about a great example I've used is the company, we'll call it ABC Energy. And they had a board member, we'll call him Cecil. And Cecil was the CEO of a coal mine company. And he was a really good director on ABC. And then ABC sold its coal mines and bought wind turbines and went into wind farms. Okay. Well, Cecil hasn't had a lot to say since this happened, right? Cecil really has the wrong skills to be at the ABC Energy board. What do we do about Cecil? He's not going to hit the retirement age for five years. And he's kind of just sitting there. Now, if you do a director evaluation, Cecil's going to get some feedback that tells him he's not much of a contributor. It's probably going to tell him, well, maybe you should go, you know, read a book about wind farms. But he's kind of then a hobbyist, right? As opposed to trading Cecil out for somebody that actually knows a lot about wind farms and make, can make a real contribution. That's what you really need to do. Okay. So director evaluations don't work for that. They just don't. It's far better to use a board succession planning tool. And that's what I like Board 2.0 for. Tell us about Board 2.0. Yeah, Board 2.0 is the best board succession planning tool I've ever found. So really what it does, it engages the entire board in developing the optimal board to oversee the company in three to five years time. And you get alignment from that. Everybody buys into that. We were talking earlier, Lynn, about that PWC study of the 700 board members. Well, what that also determined was 49% of them said that, yeah, we have a board succession plan, but no one other than the governance committee seems to know what it is. And that's not good either. The composition of the board is probably the single most important feature in a board's effectiveness. And it's a very personal issue for a lot of directors. So if it's sort of a black box approach, I think that's a prescription for a lot of disharmony on your board. So a lot of what I like about board 2.0 is that it engages everybody on the board. It takes a holistic approach and it's very, very specific. So if we use this example about Cecil and the wind forums, once you create board 2.0, it's not going to have coal experience on it, right? So it's going to be very evident to Cecil that his time is short on the board. In many cases, Cecil will simply say, I see the writing on the wall, I'm not going to stand, or I'm going to offer my resignation. And even if he doesn't, and you decide, you know, Cecil's time has come, you've prepaved the whole thing. He knows it's coming. It's a much more straightforward conversation, and it's a lot easier to manage. It's also totally in the discretion of the governance committee. Now, let's say, for example, that Cecil doesn't have much to say anymore because the coal mines are gone. But let's say Cecil is the chair of the comp committee. And let's say he's a really good comp chair and he will stare down the CEO and cut his bonus and everything else. They can say, we don't care if you're on board 2.0 or not. We're going to continue to renominate you, Cecil. So it gives the non-gov committee a really nice lever. And I like that aspect of board 2.0 as well. We now interrupt this podcast to share with you that as a professional organization, Governance Professionals of Canada puts governance professionals first with education, professional development, networking, critical resources, advocacy, and strategic partnerships tailored to your unique needs. It's never too late to enhance your skills and to find your tribe, so invest in your future by joining Governance Professionals of Canada today. For more information, 
visit gpcanada.org forward slash join. That's gpcanada.org forward slash join. And join us at GPC. I'm sure some folks are thinking, well, what is the difference between what you're talking about for 2.0 and composition planning and a traditional skills matrix? Yeah, so many, many boards use skills matrices and they kind of go back to the era of the cassette tapes. There's nothing terribly wrong with them. To me, they're more of an investor relations tool. You know, you see them a lot of times in a proxy and the idea is to try to tick as many boxes as you can and sort of reassure your shareholders and your stakeholders that we've got, you know, all these skills on our board. So I think they're a very good investor relations tool. I don't think they're a terribly effective board succession planning tool because they're not looking forward enough. They're looking at your current board, not your future future board. They're usually created by somebody going away and creating this matrix on their own and then trying to sort of pitch it to everybody else instead of getting the whole board engaged around it. And they often use very generic terms, which when you're really doing succession planning, I think you need to avoid like leadership. I always feel bad. I see these skills matrices and proxies and there's like two people that don't have leadership checked off next to them. I'm like, what, are they not leaders? I mean, it's so generic. When you do board 2.0, you really drill down. So if somebody says, well, in this seat, we need finance. Okay, what is that? Is that a former CFO? Is it a big four partner? Is it an investment banker? Is it a commercial banker? What is that? Hmm, maybe it's a CFO, active or retired? Hmm, I think retired. Any segment? Yes, has to be highly regulated industry. Whatever. All of a sudden, you're getting into a much more useful. And when you do that, and then you start working with your headhunter, even though they may retell a little bit of that sort you're in really good shape because you've got a lot of alignment, a lot of engagement from the board around that. So then for 2.0, would you say then is also a strategic planning tool for the organization? Well, I don't know I would say that, but I think you're onto something exactly there, Lynn, which is I was just talking to a young CEO of a biotech in California last week who loves board 2.0. And he is taking his board sort of on a long-term journey, let's put it this way, into a very different direction. And I said, when you're done, that's when you want to do board 2.0, because it's then the add-on to the strategy. You say, gosh, we're going here. Now, this company right now is purely an R&D, but they hope to take two drugs to market inside three years. That means they're going to need different skills at their board than what they have now. So it's a great tool to use coming out of a long-term strategic initiative. Yes. Excellent. And tell me more about a new director 360, which is the other tool that I believe you mentioned you created the tool for Cisco Systems. Fortune 100 company based in Houston. And why did they want to create the new Director 360 and, and how could other boards take advantage of that and use it? So Cisco had done director evaluations for some time and they had some very sophisticated directors on their board. And these two directors in particular, one had been on the board 18 months, the other one 12 months. They had been on some other Fortune 100 boards. This was certainly not their first rodeo. And they were really uh, people that their non-gov chair felt could be stars of the board. And so they said, we, we don't want to do just our standard director evaluation 
position, we want to do something that's a lot more worthwhile for directors of this caliber. So what we did was basically a 360 process. I interviewed everybody on the board and also I think four senior executives that regularly attended board meetings and the external auditors, the compensation consultants, because one of them sat on the audit committee and the other one sat on the comp committee. And we gave them very, very rich feedback. And what was really interesting about the process, it was both evaluative and it had a developmental component. So let me sort of explain that. On the evaluative side, you know, even though these people were extremely, you know, capable in terms of governance, they just loved getting feedback from their peers on this board that they were new to, that reinforced their strengths, that reinforced what they were doing well, that reinforced their contributions. That meant the world to them. That was kind of where they felt like they become part of the team. And the other thing a new director 360 does is it nips problems in the butt. You know, if there's a small thing and you raise it early on, the person will fix it. It's not this long-term pattern that then you're like, oh, what kind of intervention are we going to have to do? So the other thing that's nice about the new director 360 is we also asked, okay, if you were going to give this director some advice to continue learning about the business, to continue their development, what would you advise? That's the developmental piece. You would believe the fantastic creative ideas that board members and executives came up with. You know, they recommend, so once there's this one particular conference, and if you do nothing else, like go to this one. And somebody else said, you know, the one was a real tech guru. And they said, just go have coffee with this one one digital team and you know you'll learn more and they'll love meeting this high profile board member some of these recommendations which is great and they were a way to continue the director's development and learning post orientation which they just love so so I'm gotcha. a huge fan of that and I think that any board should look at something like a director new director 360 yeah. as sort of the capstone of their orientation program it sounds like a great tool what about the board composition benchmarking? You know, that goes back to earlier in my earlier life before I moved to New York, I used to do some executive compensation consulting work, Ken Hugson and, and those guys at Mercer. And so what did you do in that work? Well, you created peer groups, right, for executive comp. And when I started working on board effectiveness, the first time I did this, I had a client in Mexico and a lot of directors that were going to retire, they were looking at board composition. And I said, why don't we take the peer group you use for executive comp and do an analysis of the composition of their boards. And that was really interesting. And it's not to imply that your board has to mirror the other boards in your sector, but it gives you a lot of really interesting insights. You can look at backgrounds. You can look at things like retirement policies. You can look at diversity. You can look at all kinds of interesting things. And so what I like about it too, is that unlike board 2.0, or even a board evaluation where you're saying, well, gosh, if we were going to recruit, what would you prioritize? Those are opinion-based decisions. This is data-driven. So it's a really nice balance with a board 2.0 or something like that, because that's what people think. And then you say, okay, well, let's look at these other boards. And it just brings a different lens to and the additional criteria as well. Exactly. And nearly always, you'll think about things like for these guys in Mexico, like here, we looked at some European boards and they had some people on it with a certain background. They said, we would never have thought of that. But mm-hmm. Now that we've seen that, we want to talk about it. So that's a really interesting process. And then also obviously choosing the right companies is important. Yeah. Start with your peer group. Like, you know, if you're a public company, you should have a peer group that you use for executive comp. So start with that. And it's important that you use public companies because otherwise you can't get the data you need to do the analysis, right? Yep. Compare apples to apples. 
Yeah. So you start with your peer group for executive comp and then you can tweak it. I mean, I do that whenever I do it, but with the ones in Mexico, they took out a number of Mexican companies, put in some European companies. They wanted four family controlled companies in the mix because they were a family controlled company. And one of their issues was the percentage of family board seats versus non-family board seats. So, you know, you can start with your peer group and then tweak it to serve the purpose of this exercise, but it's a great start. That is a great tool. Great idea. Well, unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time. But one question I'd like to ask you, and it's a broader question, which is always on our minds at GPC, of course. So I'd like your own particular angle. Plus, you work with so many of our members. I know a lot of governance professionals who want to make changes to their boards, changes that they would feel themselves that they could really improve the board's effectiveness. And so from what you've seen in your experience, what do you see as a key strategy for a governance professional in introducing those kinds of changes successfully if they're not happening from within? So first of all, let me just say that I think that corporate secretaries and governance professionals are in the most unique and great position to make changes to their board. And many of them accomplish that and are owed a great debt of gratitude by the company shareholders for what they accomplish. Okay. And also just mend all the good work you do in that area, Lynn, and, and your organization. So I'll answer that question. There's three little words that are the magic words leading from behind. So what does that mean in the context, whether you're a corporate secretary, a CEO, a general counsel, even a chief HR officer, if you're an executive and you want to make changes to your board, and by the way, I've never met a CEO who honestly didn't want to make changes to their board, okay? But they go about a very clumsy way. Mm -hmm. Leading from behind means this, you understand the processes. You understand how does this process work? How do I need to tweak this to work at my board and to get the most impact of it? And how far can it take me? What about this process? Figure out which is the right one and then lead your board to the process. Get them to adopt it, shepherd them through it. But at that point, they're leading it. You're leading from behind. And that's what creates ownership on the part of the board and a bias for action. And most of the time, they're going to go right exactly where you wanted them to go because you've led them to the processes to get them there. Many of the things we've talked about today If you want to make some changes to the board composition, we talk about a board 2.0. If you want to make some changes in director performance management, we can talk about some tools to do that. The more you know about different tools that are out there and different processes, you can figure out which one to take out of your toolkit that's going to serve your needs, that of your CEO or your chair, whoever wants to make these changes, lead the board on over there, get them engaged and get them to take ownership. And I think that's the best strategy. I've seen. And I think there's a lot of potential on that front for your members and other corporate secretaries, not only in Canada, but around the world. Definitely. Great insights. Thank you so much. I think we're out of time, unfortunately, but Bev, it was amazing to have you on board and to get your insight on all of these very important issues for boards and governance professionals. I'm Obviously, I'm interested in the online workshops, the innovations in board building. Where can we find that? What does it cost? What, you know, if uh, we're interested in the ebook on board and director evaluations, what do we have to do to get them? Well, thank you for asking. So come on over to my website, which is www.boardadvisor.net. 
So it's .net, not .com, boardadvisor.net. You'll see a lot of white papers on there that you'll enjoy. Look at the workshops. There's a little drop-down list of those and also the ebook of Board and Director Evaluations, Innovations for 21st Century Governance Committees. If you want to get any of them and you use the discount code prelaunch50, it will cut the price in half for the month of June. Relaunch five zero. Relaunch five zero. That's, that's amazing. That. Thank you. That's, that's very that. generous of you, Beth. And, and so that's on the workshops. That's on the ebooks for the CS Succession Planning, Innovations and Board Building, and the ebook of the Board and Director Evaluations. And the workshops come with ebooks as well. You'll mm-hmm. see that. So yeah. And I believe we're extending the discount until July. Is that correct? We can extend the discount okay. until July. Yes, we will do that. So the discount will go all through July. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much, Beth. Yes, you know what? You are a tireless governance animal, I guess, is what I'd like to call you because you have so much energy to come out with so many books and workshops, such amazing tools and insights for boards and governance professionals, things that we can really put into practice and that we can really use and see the evolution of those tools based on your own experience and applying it to real organizations. And it's a great pleasure to have you. Always a great pleasure to you. So thank you so much. Lynn, it's a real privilege for me to get a chance to work with you. Thanks for all you do in this space and all you've done over the years because you've been a real leader in this area and, and in the Canadian government scene. Thank so you. it's a real honor. Thanks. Thanks, Bev. Okay. So that concludes our podcast. And thank you so much for listening to the Governance Voice. To find out more about GPC and what we do, please visit our website at gpcanada.org and visit us again next month for the next edition of the podcast at The Governance Voice. So thank you all for being here. And thanks again, Beth. Governance Matters. The audio in this podcast is brought to you by Impact AV Solutions, building valuable partnerships and customized event designs for each of their clients. They utilize their technical and creative expertise to deliver the flawless execution of each event, making each one an unforgettable experience. Impact AV Solutions is based out of the GTA and is able to service events across Canada. For more information on their services, please visit impactavsolutions.com. This podcast was brought to you by Governance Professionals of Canada, or GPC, your voice for governance professionals nationwide. Our mission is to highlight all aspects of corporate governance for corporate secretaries, board members, committees, general counsel, risk, compliance, and more. For more information on GPC, please visit gpcanada.org. That's gpcanada.org. Tune in next time for our take on the latest in corporate governance. Governance Professionals of Canada is providing this podcast as a public service and an informative resource on issues in governance. Our content is not intended as a legal representation nor a formal statement of GPC's policy, opinion, or recommendations. Any reference to specific products, services, or entities does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by GPC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of their views or of any entity they represent. GPC does not take responsibility for content produced outside of our organization. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our organization at info at gpcanada.org. That's info at gpcanada.org.